Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. I mean, no offense, son, but that, that, that's some weak-ass thinking. You, you're equivocating like a motherfucker. <laughs> Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, today we're going to talk about death anxiety, insomnia, and Kafka's metamorphosis. Are we slowly turning into antinatalists? <laughs> I mean, to deal with this depression that comes from my death anxiety, I feel like I'm slowly but surely getting there. I mean, um, you were halfway there anyway. I mean, I'm just sitting all afternoon, just sitting in my chair, reading this shit and just like fighting back panic attacks. <laughs> and, uh, and me, I'm, I'm so, like, I was weeping. I've never wept. <laughs> like, I don't remember weeping when I've read something like I did the end of Metamorphosis. Both times. You don't cry easily. Yeah. I don't cry at f- sad things easily. I cry very easily at happy things when i cry at art or or you know entertainment it's it's because either something really happy and moving happened maybe that involves parents and children and families if something is just really good if something is really well done that makes me tear up but not like deep deep sadness where i'm trying to figure out what is evoking this emotion in me not like that that i can remember yeah i cry so easily that my daughter uh, mocks me like we would be watching like even when she was little if i watched like a a tender episode of the justice league animated series yeah and she yeah she would like turn and be like are you crying? <laughs> Just <Same>. cruelly. <laughs> Same thing. Like, but yeah, like Simpsons. I would cry at the end of like fifty percent of Simpsons episodes. Yeah, but I also do get come to tears when I see, like, the first. But my sister took me to um, to Europe when I went for the first time, and we went to museums, and you get to see like all this Renaissance art that you've seen so many times, you know, in in books and yeah. on, on TV. And seeing it in person was literally bringing me to tears. And my sister was, the fuck is wrong with you? Where's the bathroom? Like Like slapping you in the face. (laughs) Yeah. Be a man. Now, that's how my daughter is, too. And it's funny because she's, you know, like especially sometimes little kids, they'll cry, but they don't cry about this sentimental stuff. And right, right, right. It requires like some some years of just fucking like <laughs> like hard living. <laughs> but but on the other hand, if there's a like if there's a dog in anything, 
that that something bad like you, i cannot still to this day she's 14 i can't show her something with a that's sad with a dog that yeah me neither in fact yeah. she won't see john wick because a dog dies <laughs> in the beginning of that and there are movies like great movies that she swears that she hates because like a dog and even if it's the most like incidental thing <laughs> in the story um she will yeah yeah i think uh, we have we have similar interactions <laughs> i used to tell her all the time like if only you cared that much about like starving kids you know she was just a, yeah. she doesn't give a fuck no, i know and they and not feeling guilty they don't no no feel guilty not about even. not giving a fuck it's like <laughs> Uh, oh well one day one day when those years catch up to them and they, they're reminiscing they'll uh, learn are you surprised at my tears sir oh fucking a. strong men also cry strong men also cry so uh so let's let's get right to the anxiety, I guess. Let's get right to- Yeah, let's get to this paper, which looks like it was written for for you especially. Um it, Yeah, like- I feel like I was they just surveyed me two hundred and forty five times. <laughs> uh life is short, stay awake, death anxiety and bedtime procrastination. Bye. You can do the names. <laughs> uh damn it. I didn't practice this. These are Turkish authors, uh, Turk Harslan, OK, Sevrim, and Bozo. Um, <laughs> <that>? so, <laughs> I, I'm, sh- I'm sure that was 100% perfect. <laughs> Kutlu, Kagan, Turklas, yeah, yeah. Larson, Dennis, OK. Yeah. Mustafa, Sevrim, Sevrim. Oslem, Bozo. Yeah. 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 They're kind you, of comical you, you just had names. <laughs> OK and Bozo and... Uh, they fake their names too. <laughs> uh, is the Journal of General Psychology is this a good journal? Um, I've never heard of it, so doesn't mean a good paper can't be published in it. But I've never heard of it. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, could could be decent. Could be paid to publish. Who knows? Nowadays, everything's on the internet. I don't even pay attention to what it's in. You know. So you're going to describe the paper, but basically, it it tries to make a connection between. Bedtime procrastination and death anxiety. Yeah, I mean it's fairly straightforward and simple. So, so this is an online survey. They surveyed uh, two hundred and forty-five participants, and they gave them a number of measures, which included a measure of death anxiety and a measure of of uh, bedtime procrastination. So, a bedtime procrastination scale, um, death attitudes profile. Purpose in Life, Brief Self-Control Scale, Circadian Energy Scale, Pittsburgh Sleep Quality Index. So the, the idea, the core idea comes from terror management theory, um, where the view is that uh, we, as, as animals who know we're going to die, right? human beings, this is what characterizes uh, uh, the human condition for, for terror management theory, that... Um, States like sleep are are kind of like death, at least reminiscent of death. So anything like going into a coma or going to an operation or, or, or just being unconscious for any amount of time would be a potent reminder that we are, are limited. And as, as the authors propose, 
perhaps people realize that every minute spent asleep is a, a minute less of life that we have. And one of the things they point out is is that that over time sleep the average sleep has gone way down. So it used to be nine hours a night on average, like whatever fifty hundred years ago, and now it's more like seven. But then they talk about de- uh, sleep procrastination, which is just dilly dallying, as as I my daughter was often want to do before bed. Just you're doing everything you can to not go to sleep. So let's let's uh, pretend that you're a subject. You get you're going to get a few scales. Death attitudes profile revised. So here is one of the items there. Uh, these are dimensional, so seven point scale. Um, I am disturbed by the finality of death. So you rate this from one strongly disagree to seven strongly agree. I don't know, kind of disagree. So whatever that would be. <laughs> so like a th- four is the middle. So, so three. Three is them. Yeah, I am. Two or three. I'm at a seven. I'm yeah. at a seven. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so a bunch of questions like that. And then a, a few other things. So here's a circadian energy scale. Uh, in general, how is your energy level in the morning, in the evening, or in the afternoon on a five-point scale? So what would you say morning, evening, in the afternoon? Well, it depends you know, like what if, how much have I drank and how, yeah, like <laughs> what other drugs played a role in, yeah, how much sleep. I mean, I, th- this is part of my problem. Like I couldn't, I don't think I could answer any of these questions with any kind of reliability. Uh, maybe. I mean, look, there is, it, there is clearly a true difference between your death anxiety and mine, right? Yes. So, so to the extent that we could track this across people, you know, it's a, but it's always a rough, a rough uh, indicator. I think, as you're pointing out, um, the the key finding here, which is we've already given it too much time because it's a very, very simple finding, and that is that uh, that for men, so this is this is one of the things that is suspicious. But only for men does death anxiety correlate with bedtime procrastination. Um, so, so the more you report that you are anxious about dying the more likely you are to dilly dally before going to bed and they report this as as some evidence for the link between between sleep as as a reminder of death and and this individual difference in death anxiety so uh, i don't know why they try they try to say they try to explain why they try to explain why for women this wouldn't be the case and i i don't i don't know um, well, no, they give, yeah, they give an explanation that women are children. Men's lifespan is shorter than women's, and oh, consequently, yeah. bedtime true. procrastination could be even more risky for males because it leads to insufficient sleep and fatigue. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a lot of hand-waving. This strange. is exactly the sort of thing that pre-registration is important about because if you start splitting the data um, after the fact, and not, I'm not, I don't know if they, it doesn't say that they pre-registered this, but, but this is one this is a no no when when you start dividing up the right so if you, if you yeah. start dividing up the sample into men versus women or older versus younger you're going to find something eventually <laughs> so i don't know i like just the idea it reminds me you know there's a great nas lyric i never sleep cuz sleep is the cousin of death yeah yeah <laughs> That's interesting. I didn't even think of that, that they probably didn't get a significant result and then looked at the data. Well, what happens if we split up men and women and then they would get a significant result? And so they chose that. Yeah. And, then, yeah. and that's a cast aspersions, but that that's just the way 
for a long time people did all their analyses. So yeah, you know, yeah. maybe Brian Nosek and the open science movement hasn't hit them yet. Don't you say if you've pre-registered a hypothesis? You would, yeah, yeah. They, it would behoove you to in this case. So I have I had a somewhat strong reaction to this, and and if, and I was so I have this idea for a new book which I'm not ready to talk about yet, but it made me go back and listen to our episode on which discipline is more fucked, philosophy or psychology. And I was, you were arguing for philosophy, I was arguing for psychology being more fucked. And my main argument there wasn't about the replication crisis or data mining like this might have been, but it was like a deeper concern that the underlying assumptions of what many psychologists are doing at at the core level, the fundamental level, using experimental methods to try to explain highly complex phenomena or features of human nature, the human mind, that there was something perhaps fatally flawed about it um, because these methods, controlled experiments, modeled on the hard sciences, they can't do that. They can't capture something that complex and messy as death anxiety or, um, or even maybe bedtime procrastination, sleep procrastination. And they're certainly not able to do it in a fine grain enough way that could allow you to explain one in terms of the other. So this one, they got their samples from social media and their university. It self-reports on everything as if all these things are transparent to us, right? Like, and that we can reliably express the actual phenomenon using Likert scales. It just seems like a mismatch of method and thing you're trying to explain. And, yeah. and, and this strikes me as something that is doomed, not just at the sort of technical nitpicky level that people like Brian Nozick and Sanjay Srivastava, am I pronouncing that right? Yeah. Uh, and Yoel um, in some moods. And um, yeah, I mean, they have done a good job reforming that. But this criticism is something that even if you got your act together about some of the those kinds of problems, the p-hacking, the data mining and all that, you would still have this potential problem. And I'm not sure, but like I mean, something okay, but like these phenomena, like these things are really hard to get your mind around. But, and I just don't but, think experiment, controlled experiments using, you know, weird samples and all of that are, are the way to do it. Okay, but you're, you're pointing to, to, and you know, it's not like I'm not sympathetic to this, this possibility, but I, I think that you've not even explained what it is that the fatal fly is because in your explanation, you keep pointing to the technical aspects. So weird samples, self-report scales, um, right? The complexity of measurement and the stability of measures. The non-transparency of some of these things to people. Yeah. What do you mean by non-transparent? Like, it's just not transparent to us how, like... Oh, you mean we don't have access to it? Yeah. In proposing those those kinds of criticisms, those are all uh, somewhat fixable. So you could have, as we do, very decent behavioral measures of sleep procrastination, right? So you could actually just say, at what time 
did you decide that you're going to go to bed and how long did it take for you to get from from there to to actually go to bed and you could find that on average some people take 30 minutes and on average some people take five minutes like it's not intractable in that sense and you could for instance find using a reliable measure that sleep procrastination was correlated with something else of importance like what time do you get up or how alert do you feel in a completely subjective way like uh you could find that and and that would be an actual finding right so there are a lot of really complex technical hurdles and the complexity of something like like i'm fully on board with that so you could say like well there's a gajillion things that are influencing how awake i feel in the morning yeah but then i'm awake and i can kind of report that this morning i feel more energetic than than yesterday morning that doesn't seem intractable to me no but connecting that to your anxiety about death that's the link that i'm saying is might be in principle with the methods that are uh, even like really good methods that are available to social psychologists, um, that might not be. That might not yeah. be just something that you can you can I'm, draw any kind of insight from, and certainly not as much as you could draw through other forms of inquiry, through a more descriptive study or just a work of art or something like that. That uh, w- would be more enlightening than this. Yeah. Well, a more descriptive study would you you might fall prey to the same kind of sort of like you have no access to to your actual death anxiety. Like an interview might not do any better at pulling that out. But there would um, be less pretense to, you know, if William James wrote about this, you wouldn't you wouldn't feel like this was I, you know, you, you would understand that this is from his perspective based on his observations of human nature and maybe interviews or maybe, but it wouldn't be, it wouldn't have this pretense to this is a study and a finding and a result that we have to take seriously. Yeah, but uh, calling it pretense is, is begging the question a bit. It's only pretense if you think that there's something flawed about it. And I'm not sure, like in many cases... Like, look, so death anxiety specifically, that's a tough one. Like, I don't know that, I mean, even by definition, one day we will actually do the the denial of death episode that we keep promising. But that construct, that idea is, you know, originally was that this is an unconscious anxiety that, that we're not even aware that we're having this. That, that seems doomed. So there are plenty of things I think that seem doomed to be uh, measured through a seven, you know, seven point Likert scale self-report online. But there are things that that are just nothing but the collective set of observations um, and reduction of noise. So if I say to you, like, are you do, do you have death anxiety? And you're like, yeah, I think I do. Well, now if I say to you, like, compared to other things you're anxious about, where does death rank? And then I ask a whole bunch of other people that that's nothing but my observation that has become systematic. And surely there's some insight and truth to some of these methods. There's nothing in the method itself that is. Yeah. I just think when you're trying to connect these two things, so like think of how simplistic this is. Okay. Why do we put off going to sleep? Oh, because we're anxious about death and we associate sleep with death. That must explain it unless you're a woman. And then you won't have that. Like, that's just, it's never going to be like that. It's never, well, like, that was the hypothesis. And I think that just shows a fundamental misunderstanding of how complex human nature is, how but, varied it is, how 
but they're but they're saying that you, this explains this very you know like two percent of the variance. Like they're not they're not saying this explains everything. Like and they're not even denying that there are a hundred things that might affect uh, bedtime procrastination. They're saying like we found the one. And, and I, in principle, yeah. like I don't I don't know why you would deny that that's a finding without a good reason to say that this is Im- impossible to measure. Yeah, I guess in some sense, I think the burden is not on me. The burden is on the the psychologist to justify the assumptions that are driving all the all on the on the research. Yeah, well, this is, could be a whole episode, so we should probably we should. Move on. I but, mean, I agree. I, mean, yeah. I didn't want this to turn yeah. into something bigger. And like I said, I'm I'm sort of this is something I've been thinking about in a broader context, not just involving psychology. We can tease that we're planning on doing an episode on um, uh, on the article by Paul Rosen. Yeah, and in fact, yeah. that was something that I think influenced. I came across it as I was thinking of this idea, but I think that the, the as I understand that article by Paul Rosen, and thanks to Mickey Inslet for Inslet. Uh, <laughs> tweeting out just a quote from it. And what's it called? It's called uh, psych- Social Psychology and Science: Some Lessons from Solomon Ash. Yeah, and so. What I take my criticism to be here is a is very much in line with the criticisms that are put forth by Paul Rosen in that paper. Yeah. Well, good. I love that paper, and uh, I take so, I mean, I take these criticisms. Ser- these are what keep me up at like along with death anxiety. These are the other things that keep me up at night because I worry <laughs> deep. <laughs> I worry deeply about it. I will say this: if we are ever to get to a science of full fully understanding human behavior it's going to take computational power and uh, and complexity that i can't i know i can't represent in my mind there'll never be you know i was just giving a lecture for uh, an intro psych class and um this is a video lecture and they were asking me what i thought the errors of of psychology have been like what are what are the, some of the biggest missteps psychology have taken and my thought was that any time that you try to explain, like whether it be Freud or Skinner or, or any, any of the big theorists, any time you try to boil down all of human behavior into one grand theory, you're going you're gonna to be wrong. Yeah. Like I don't even think that, that, that um, you know, we can have very local theories. Like I could say like, well, when you drink caffeine, you're better at a memory test. Like, fine. Right. right. Or this visual illusion will occur because of the way that the visual system is. But to try to say anything that grand, like we're just not there. We're just not there. So, yeah. And it might be. And this is this is, again, very much in line with our discussion. It might be that we can't get there with the methods that are available to us now. Maybe our AI overlords We'll get there maybe if we are lab experiments for some higher being, they can understand it. You know, I think the real question is whether this is even the best way of trying to understand human age. It doesn't have to be the best way. It could just be a way that offered some insight in its own way. But again, we should talk yeah. about this. Yeah, 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 yeah. I will say this. Like, I think at the end of the day, I'm an optimist about science, but that doesn't mean I'm an optimist about the specific methods that our science is using. Right. Um, I think the only way to explain natural phenomena will be through science, but whether, you know, and this will dovetail into the next segment, what the way 
it's not even just the explanation that might be too like the getting at the explanation that might be too complicated, but even communicating the explanation might be too complicated. And that's maybe why you're pulled and I'm pulled to the, to the artistic, you know, poetic way of communicating some deep truths, because I'm not sure how an experiment could, could communicate to us. Like, I'm not sure, you know, yeah, even if there was some sort of link, it wouldn't we wouldn't be able to communicate it through these right. studies. Okay, well that's a good if poetic if our, <laughs> we are drawn to poetic forms of uh, shedding light on human nature, let's we will do that when we come back with a discussion of Kafka's metamorphosis. Speaking of methodological improvements that your field needs to make, we have a new sponsor, Dave, and it is Prolific. Yeah, I'm really excited about this. Prolific is a research service. So it's a service that allows you to collect data from uh, what now is consists of a pool of 70,000 regularly active participants in North and uh, North America and Europe. And I just want to give a little background as to why this is so important that personally, historically matters to me. When I was in grad school in the in the mid-90s, we used to have to collect participants from just our, our intro psych subject pools. So we ended up with studies that had like, you know, 12, four conditions and 12, 12 people per cell. Uh, that led to some... And then you would, that way you would make broad general conclusions from that about human nature. Well, of nature. course, yeah, we, we know about human yeah. nature. Well, of course, yeah. that's how that's how it works. <laughs> but what but we we are not we are not irresponsible like that anymore because we have services like Prolific at our fingertips. So once we're able to start collecting data on the internet, and then and then with the use of MTurk, but that changed. But now we have an even better service that's dedicated specifically built for academic researchers to collect quality data. Prolific survey takers are regular citizens. You can quickly recruit people like Democrats, Republicans, African Americans, young people, old people, students, Jewish podcasters, and <laughs> the hottest <laughs> demographic. And and you can pre-screen these for these participants at no additional cost. Some services actually charge you more for this, but not with Prolific. Um, Prolific, I think most important to, to me as a researcher, and I have students who have, who have used it, is that they care a lot about data quality. So they use techniques to improve the data quality and screen out what might be a bot um, or just bad participants in general. They, they care about weeding out professional survey takers. They make sure that they distribute the surveys evenly across all of the people who take surveys for them. Um, so it offers a lot of improvements. One other thing they do nicely is that you can do longitudinal or follow-up studies with participants fairly easily. So if you have a study where you want to track people at time one and then look at the same people again at time two, they have really low attrition rates. So 85 or 90% of the original participants tend to take that study. One of the most important points is that they are, they've recently introduced the ability to get nationally representative samples from both the US and the UK at the click of a button. So so as we know, if we want to make any conclusions about a population, it's good to have a, a representative sample of that population. And you could do that now with Prolific. And make your research more generalizable. And we have a very sweet deal for our listeners. If you go to prolific.co slash very bad wizards, 
you'll get $100 credit if you sign up and then top up your account with $250 or more for the first time. So for example, if you top up with $250, you'll have $350 to spend. Or if you top up by $1,000, you'll have $1,100 to spend. So once again, go to prolific.co slash verybadwizards and you'll get $100 credit if you sign up and fill your account with $250 or more. Yeah, thanks to Prolific for doing this. This discount, uh, we should note, is valid for July and August only. So if you were thinking at all about signing up, sign up now with this URL. Let them know that you came from from our podcast. And, and thank you, Prolific, for giving our listeners this deal. Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. Uh, this is the time of the show when we want to express our gratitude. Um, and once again, thank you everybody so much for all the ways in which you keep our little community going, uh, keep us going, keep us recording uh, seven years strong. Um, it's it's a little insane to think of, but uh, what's also insane is just the sheer amount of reaching out you guys do. And we really, really appreciate it. If you want to get a hold of us in any way, you can email us verybadwizards at gmail.com. Email makes for a, a more coherent, better understood message on our part. But chances of reply are higher on Twitter, wouldn't you say? Statistically. Not from maybe, me. May, no, maybe not. Maybe yeah. Not. Um. But that's why we have these various methods of getting in touch with us. So we appreciate them all. Um, at Tamler, at Peas, or at Very Bad Wizards, you can join the subreddit uh, community, which is reddit.com slash r slash Very Bad Wizards. Um, you can, there's actually a really nice post the other day. Did you see it? Um, yeah. Yeah. People just talking about what they've gotten from listening to the podcast in a way that I'm totally going to save and read when I'm <laughs> for a rainy day. When you're feeling anxious about death. Well, that'll be my legacy, like a subreddit discussion. <laughs> um, you can join a Facebook discussion as well. Uh, Facebook.com slash verybadwizards. You can follow us on Instagram. Some fun stuff on Instagram. How's that going? That's good. good. You know, yeah. Eliza, she's, she's growing up. She's leaving the nest. By the way, are we ever going to change that intro? Do you think that she should re revamp it? Or this is going to be just in stone for the rest of her life? I mean, what do you think about that? Because I, I like there's something about the way this show starts with that and then your intro music. That's... I feel like it would be too weird to change yeah. at this point. Like we could do it on a, as a one-off. We could change it, but, but not, not for good. Yeah, I don't know if we can.
<laughs> it would just sound like it would be jarring to me. Like I just love the way that transitions. I never it's, get tired of the intro music either. Like the intro music is so good. I can't believe about, you did that in like a night, right? It was like seven years ago, eight years ago. I know. Yeah, I had I had that music already. I was fucking around with it, and then when when we we're like, oh, like we're doing this podcast, I was like, oh, I could just chop up some Wizard of Oz into this, and and yeah, it turned out way better than I ever thought. Yeah, way better than a lot of the subsequent beats <laughs> thank you by the way to everybody who's been supportive about the beats um i released the beats without rhymes volume four um for our patreon dollar and over subscribers finally and uh and thanks for the kind words so yes if you would like to support us in more tangible ways our favorite way probably although we love our paypal donations is through patreon because it allows us to also offer you some bonus content in gratitude and in fact since the since the last time we've talked you released your beats and we also released the yoel with yoel in bar in an episode a bonus episode on two rick and morty's i can't remember That's if right. we brought it up last time I in the lebowski house uh, episode but anyway there's some new stuff there and you can always go back and and get download some of our earlier bonus episodes including uh at least five and a half hours of me talking about twin peaks with natalia washington and that's your that's your legacy right there that's my yeah and you can also support us on paypal and we know that some of you can't do it on patreon and so we really appreciate those of you who do it via paypal as well you can do a recurring donation there and we really really appreciate it we're very grateful yeah thanks to everybody um just one little because i think this is the segment to mention it um there in toronto in september i'm going to be speaking at be works which is the the consulting company that i work at they put on a yearly behavioral uh economics summit so my colleagues there be works said that if anybody wants to sign up for it, now this is behavioral economics uh, consulting, primarily targeted at businesses, but this uh, we're going to get a bunch of psychologists to come talk. I'm going to be one of them. So if you want to see me, you can sign up there. Um, but if any of our listeners actually want to go to it, uh, you can go to beworks.com slash summit. And they actually are giving our listeners a discount. So you get a 10% discount if you put wizards uh, into the checkout code, but also if you want to see me in Toronto in September. If you are at all inclined to go to that sort of thing, uh, come check it out. All right. So, Franz Kafka, we've had a bunch of requests to do a story by him. This was a good place to start because it's short. And some of our listeners don't like to read long works, understandably. You can, there is access to a lot of versions of this book online, including a Benedict Cumberbatch audiobook oh, version. Wow. Um, that you can find on SoundCloud if you search for it. All right, so there's so much to talk about. It's a it's a classic, <laughs> classic coming of age tale. But but at bottom, right, it's like kind of a simple and sad story. It's about a young man who sacrifices himself for his father, mother, and sister. He works this mind numbing, soul crushing job, and he does that because of his father's debt from a failed business. And then one morning he turns into an insect of some kind, a ver uh, some sort of verminous insect. And we can talk about the word, the German word there, because it's a it's a subject of translator controversy. And so, whereas before they were kind of parasitic on him, he now ha is the one that they have to sacrifice for. 
and they do it for a period, but they don't want to do it for very long. They just want him to uh, disappear and not be there. And in the end, when he dies, it turns out that they're better off. That, and, and not just better off than when he was an insect, but better off than they were when he was sacrificing himself for their benefit. So it's a really sad story in that sense. You know, w- before we even get into the allegory, allegorical nature of it, if you want to go there, if you take it literally, it's a very sad story. Not sentimental, but but very sad. And it, in that sense, I think something that's deeply in line with, you know, how I associate the sadness that runs through and the despair and the alienation, and I mean that not yet in the Marxist way, uh, (laughs) that his characters feel from the world around them. Part of being a lonely human being that feels more and more disconnected from from the world. Um, I like that you're you're pointing to the sadness from the get-go because... I feel like, at least with me, this story, and I read it many, many years ago during my little, you know, existentialist kick in college. Um, for me, the story was always just about getting transformed into an insect. Like, that's just how the, the story is talked about in popular culture. And like, it's, but on these readings, I think we both read them twice this time, yeah. this time around. Um, it became so evident that all you do is remove that plot point. It's just a tragedy about a guy who's maybe sick, right? And is like it does that insect part really doesn't matter. It's the fantastical part comes at the beginning, but the rest of the story is just people struggling with this with a hard circumstance in life, right? It's just, yeah. And then also, and I remember this struck me the first time I read it, which was high school or college, like you, the fact that they're flourishing once he's gone like that was that was a kind of tragic irony that i remember really i felt deeply when i first read it and i felt even more deeply um like i said in the opening like i was just weeping at the end of this story um both times i read it and i don't do that like that's not something that i do so i probably have to like figure out why this this, (laughs) this gets to me and in a way that most literature just doesn't Um, you're not gonna like squash a bug for the next couple of weeks (laughs) (laughs) no i'm not into that i know that's kind of your porn habit (laughs) but Um, uh, but yeah no like uh yeah i don't want to turn this into psychoanalyzing me but it but I do need you to figure <laughs> out by the end of this episode like why this touches so much of an earth. Uh, let me just say one other thing, just briefly introducing it. It's like a perfectly structured piece of art, and it has three parts. And in each part, you start out with this somewhat peaceful compared to what always happens at the end of the part, but it's always anxiety kind of infused and weird uh beginning and it works towards some sort of crisis moment where gregor leaves his room and the family and sometimes other strangers are confronted by what he is and they react with shock hostility and sometimes violence and they drive him back into the room so that's every one of the parts has has that so you want to just go through it and yeah and yeah part Let's... by part and Let's work our way through it because I think this. Uh, I mean, just from the from the first sentence is amazing. 
so so this was written in German in 1915. Um, language is always going to be an issue for a translation. Um, that that first sentence, when Gregor Samsa woke one morning from troubled dreams, he found himself transformed right there in his bed into some sort of monstrous insect. What an opening. And apparently Kafka just had that line, like that that idea popped into his head for the story. Yeah. Um, right. So insect here, the word, I guess, means some sort of unclean animal, like it evokes insect, but it's not it's not precise an, like an insect. It could be like a rat. It could be just right. the word. Now, right. I think there's reason to think that it's an insect. Yeah. Um, <laughs> right. But and to trans like some people translate it into monstrous vermin. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that that's right. Yeah, as we'll see, he's he's on his back and he has little little legs floating in the air. <laughs> um, yeah, and the the, the char woman calls him an old you old dung beetle. Dung beetle, that's right. Yeah. So here's what struck me when I first read it. Here's what struck me on these readings: the the normalcy with which he deals with this realization. <laughs> Yes. Like the absolute like, oh, shit, man, I must have slept wrong kind of attitude that Sam Gregor has upon realizing that he's transformed into an insect. What normally would would be just a panic moment. Right. You just freak the fuck out. He's just wondering, like, what's what's happening to me? It's it's very dream like nightmare like. Right. Like an anxiety dream. He's woken up as this insect. But really what he's worried about is the fact that he missed his alarm and that he (laughs) missed his train and uh, and straight to the mundane, like directly to the mundane. And and the worrying. That's what I mean. It's like one of those anxiety dreams where uh, and, and and those don't make sense either. It's like you are concerned about mundane things, a talk you have to give or like taking a test or something like that. And the fact that you're naked in a quad or whatever is only noticed mm-hmm. as a kind of an obstacle to the mundane thing that you have to do. And that's what this is like, right? Like he right. is he he does notice that he's an insect, but the way in which it concerns him is only the way in which it'll you know impede him from packing his briefcase or from doing the even getting out of bed. He's like, all right, all right, it's seven o'clock. I'm definitely going to get out of bed. All right, <laughs> he's like apparently on his back and can't move. He's like, all right, it's it's almost just like he's he's hung over or something. He's like, you can do this, Gregor. You can do this. <laughs> And and you find out you get these great Kafka is so good at this like you get these glimpses as to how terrible the job is how much they use their workers how you know how much he is sacrif or at least he believes he's sacrificing for his family and just like he's a traveling salesman and right. I forget where I read this that this is like he's a traveling salesman and sometimes you wake up in a and we we can relate to this you wake right. up in a hotel and you don't know where you are or what's going on for those first moments it it kind of evokes that too of this yeah. wait what is going on i've been here i've been there and i don't know where i am and it, it just takes uh, like some time to get your bearings right sometimes actually those moments of not knowing where you are extend into like yes. what to me is is a very panicky kind of kind of uh moment but but yeah. <laughs> wait what right really like yeah yeah where i'm like oh holy shit what the fuck like wait why can't i remember where i am like 
and then I see <laughs> then I see the young the, the daddy hunker Filipino boy <laughs> next to me. Yeah. No, just, <laughs> there's a good little description of the shitty life of the traveling salesman um, when he says, "Good Lord, what an exhausting profession I've chosen. Day in and day out on the road, work like this is far more unsettling than business conducted at home. And then I have the agony of traveling itself to contend with, worrying about train connections, the irregular, unpalatable meals." and human intercourse that is constantly changing, never developing the least constancy or warmth. Devil take it all. Which is, again, like the second thought he has after realizing he's an insect. Like, he's worried about work. He's worried about the shitty nature of his job. It's a, it's, I know I've focused on the me crying and how sad <laughs> this is, but it's also very funny, the opening scene. It's slapstick, almost, of him worrying about like he's a a giant bug if you just picture it and you have his family on the outside kind of not knowing why he won't get up and every time he tries to talk it he he can understand it right but they can't understand him he can understand them and then the boss this is another nightmarish quality the boss comes it's like seven in the morning and the boss is is just in his house already admonishing him for not being at work and then you know he he tries in these opening scenes he tries to be kind of optimistic about his predicament even as a bug and he's like look if they can see me then they'll either recoil in horror and i can like rest for a little bit or they'll try to help me get to work like he still thinks he's going to get to work as a beetle so i mean like i think it does a really good job of evoking a lot of things a nightmare just waking up in a strange place but this idea of strangeness it sort of builds the relationship uh, the relationships in this first section where, you know, his his mother and his father and his sister. So those are the three family members who are there. He seems to have a good relationship with his mom and uh, if he won with his father. Um, his father seems like a dick, right? Yeah, and you get the sense that the mother is kind of hapless, somewhat hysterical woman but that deeply lo- is devoted to Gregor and right. is worried about him. You don't get that sense. And and the sister also, although we find out a lot more about her later. Right. I mean, this whole thing is, seems like a play, right? It, it seems as if it would be a great play. Like, all you need is this one set. You have the stage, people going back and forth from the room to the living room. Um, yeah. It's, it's like a play if you didn't have to have the giant insect. in it you know but it like it is like a domestic drama it's very it almost all takes place in the apartment yeah yeah and so then he he finally and for the first time it merges out the door he uses his jaws to open the lock which has been locked so so the door kind of swings open towards him and he's a bug on the floor again this is so like i i visually (laughs) It's so good at just getting you to picture the scene and just that detail of him having to walk around the door. Yeah, because his boss has been being an ass or the, the manager has been being an ass on the other side of the door, right? Yeah, the, gen, the general clerk. And he's this yeah. functionary, just this middle manager type that is just a part of this cog 
in this larger machine and he is taking out his private frustrations on Gregor and then him having to go around the door and then giving this long speech to them when they're horrified by it <laughs> that they can't even understand it's both it's both horrifying like and comic at the same time but it's definitely turned from a more comic nightmare scenario to something more like a horror movie at that point right right you it it gets to a level of grotesque i i i thought in in this in this passage in this one scene when he's trying to open the door he says um with their help he actually succeeded in causing the key to move paying no heed to the fact that he was no doubt injuring himself in the process for a brown fluid ran out of his mouth and down the key dripping onto the floor and that that actually made me throw up a little bit in my mouth. <laughs> and it's it's grotesque, but not in a comic way. That's no. when you first start to realize the degree to which this is, you know, this is really happening. This is yeah. hurting yeah. him. Yeah. And then he has to walk around and then... Um, yeah. And then he gives this long speech and the general manager gets freaked out. And then... You know, this the first of the scenes where the father just is this like it almost becomes like something of like domestic abuse, like a drama. You know, it's like a horror movie, but then also one about abuse and the father going at him with the stick and this kind of terrifying feeling where he can't move backwards. And yeah, yeah, yeah. And he what a great description that gives you gives you a little bit of that sense of being trapped. Yeah not moving backward and and having sort of the presence of mind to know that one critical hit with a stick might actually kill him and 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 so he he doesn't know what to do so he's kind of frozen paralyzed and then he he's the father sort of gauges that he just wants to go back into his room and so lets him kind of turn around and guide him and then as he's walking he says like he gives these anxious glances behind him because he's again like you said worried that he's going to get hit and it's this is the first like this really gets to me and this like reminds me of a dog at this point mm, like dogs have yeah. trouble moving backwards walking backwards and yeah and that little shooting the glances yeah 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 I, actually my heart moved a little bit at that at that and i didn't make that connection but you're right like it went from confusion as to why people were, were reacting in such a strong way and then a really kind of anxiety of like, holy shit, like they're mad and they can hurt me. And all I want to do is make them happy and just appease them and just not have them be mad at me anymore. Right. And, and throughout, you know, we're, we're, uh, we're privy to Gregor's thoughts, right? So he's, yeah. he's telling us the tale, you know, Kafka builds sympathy for him by, by telling us the sort of things that are going through his mind. Like when he's, there was a part that just, I don't know why it made me so sad when he's trying to work the lock with his mouth. He's saying, uh, all of them should have been cheering him on, including his father and mother saying, come on, Gregor, they should have shouted, just keep at it. Keep working on that lock. Like he, all he wants is that seemed very dog-like to me, right? Like yeah. the, all, all you want is them to just be like, I know you're an insect, Gregor, but you could do this. <laughs> yeah, no, he wants to be on the same team with them. Yeah. Rarely, not never, but rarely gets that wish that's absolutely right so then he gets to the door but he can't fit 
Well, no, first, no, this is a real, like, this is, it's so vivid. Like, he first starts turning around, but he goes in the wrong direction because he's so startled and bewildered by every, all the pandemonium. And then when he gets to the door, he can't go through it. Yeah, then, then the father just hits him through with a stick. Yeah. I honestly went and hugged my dogs after this. <laughs> That's not a joke. Like I gave them big hugs and like I, you know, because you know, something like Omar just threw up like shit that he's been eating on the floor, and we were <laughs> horrified on the rug actually. That we uh, and we were horrified, and of course, like, and he didn't know, you know, like it just he didn't know that that why yeah. we were acting like that and and then you know all of our agitation about it and you know we didn't hit him right. or try to but you know like I, I had to hug them <laughs> well you know and the the way that kafka is giving you the inner monologue it really is something like you would imagine the frustration of a dog right so and the good so, intentions of a dog yeah the good intentions and and gregor is is actually you know, in his mind, putting together these long strings of like a, at first an apology to his boss and then an explanation. And then, and then you realize that from the perspective of everybody else, all they're hearing is some weird chattering noise coming out. Like it it seems as if they understood the yes and the no. So there's some, something there, but the rest is like, like the, the general manager says, like, is just the sounds of an animal. Like what the fuck? <laughs> and, and and then just the way that I think a lot of animals can understand us, but we can't. But when exactly. they talk to us and with animals, especially pets, you can kind of gauge what they want just based on your relationship. But they have no relationship with Gregor as an insect. If you had an fMRI, you could. Yes. Then you would know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, that's the I want to go back to my room section of the <laughs> <laughs> the image of the father, the abusive father, uh, with a newspaper and a stick, just yeah. knocking him back into the room. He's trying, to, you know, to to fit, like not knowing why. You know, he's trying to walk backwards and fit. And his father's hissing. Yeah, you know, his father's making that just like a like really like trying to scare away an animal. And this, I don't know if this bothers him qua animal, like because he's now an insect, and this might be the kind of noise that bothers an insect. Yeah. Or if this is just a feature of his dad that he's always hated. Like yeah. I couldn't quite tell. Yeah. And I think it's ambiguous in a, in a good way. You get the sense that this is probably a part of their relationship, whether he's an <laughs> insect or not. Um, but in different ways. Yeah. And there is a way in which the dog, at least as pet analogy breaks down here, because they don't know, at least for now, that this is Greg or part of the family. They, I think they do think it's Gregor. Yeah, yeah. it's underdescribed. It's interestingly yeah. underdescribed because yeah. as I read it, I assumed that they assumed that he became that thing, but it's not. It's not there. They don't. Doesn't. What I mean? What would you think? Right? Like, ah, uh, I would be like, what the fuck kind of animal ate my? What ate my son? That's what I would think. Yeah, I mean, I guess, <laughs> and that just never comes up. No, that I no. It's. I feel like they know from the beginning. Yeah. That this is Gregor. It's yeah. just weirdly sort of everybody immediately begins dealing with this new reality. And part two, <laughs> they they clearly think it's Gregor, yeah, yeah, and yeah. I think Gregor. Yeah. But in part one, I, I yeah, I, it is ambiguous. Right. All right. So part two, do you have anything more to say about part one? I don't 
I don't think so. That it that it ends in a really dramatic way to me. Like it's it is interesting that contrast between the beginning of part two and the end of part one. We're just like, holy shit. Yeah, and then it just kind of calms down. That's how like, you know, both part one and part two have that feature of it's sort of starting in a peaceful place in his yeah. room where and then progressing towards a kind of frantic uh right. and horrifying end to the part. And there then, is there is yeah. one part that I actually meant to to uh ask you about. Kafka goes out of his way to describe the first time he actually gets on his feet, how wonderful it felt. Yeah, yeah. when he, uh, this is great, I can move, I can, like, yeah. my legs are responding to me. Right, I yeah. take it he was on his back, he saw that he had these little weird <laughs> appendages sticking out. When he finally gets onto his legs, I took it as being like, a, oh yeah, that it is my nature. This is now my nature. I I feel good walking around on my little insect legs. There's a parallel in part two also where he realizes that he enjoys hanging from the ceiling. Yeah, right. And that that is, again, that's a very bug-like thing, but it's part of his nature that he actually has a moment before everything goes to hell to, to enjoy. Oh, another thing that gets mirrored in the heartbreaking end scene is... The, and we and we've alluded to it, but I didn't. I want to just note that it has a almost perfect kind of double in the end scene of him not be, trying to turn around, but the the not being allowed to. And if he could just, he he even says, if only I could, if only he had been permitted to turn around, he'd have been back in his room at once. But he was afraid of provoking his father's fury with this time-consuming maneuver. And and at any moment, a fatal blow from the stick in his father's hand might come crashing down on his back or head. This will come back. There's yeah. another scene at the at, in the final scene before his death where he turns around, where he says, perhaps I'll be allowed to turn around now. Yeah. And nobody tries to stop him. And right. it's, uh, yeah, it's just really beautifully set up. It's... Not to get into the interpretation part too much, but it's pretty clear that Kafka is very familiar with a father who beats him. <laughs> like, and the bot at the end of that section one, he's like, his father administered a powerful shove from behind, a genuinely liberating thrust that sent him flying, bleeding profusely into the far reaches of the room. That's how it ends. The door was banged shut with a stick, and then at last, all was still. Yeah, it's quite sad. So then, it's the father that's doing that in the. In the last scene, it won't yeah. be the father. The only other thing to say is that he set up some real disdain for authority, um, I guess. You know, I, I don't know. I don't remember how much that theme goes through the book, but he really, really does not like um, the authority figures. I don't know if it's if it's co- coincides with his attitude towards his father as authority. Um uh, but it seems like a tenuous relationship with at least the the male authorities. So, what do you life. think his attitude towards his father is in part one? Do you get a do you glean anything about how he feels about his father? It feels like a very distant relationship, like yeah. uh, not not close at all. He he does sound just like a kid who's been ignored by his father and just wants. Uh, is it in part one where he's sort of wistful about? No, I think it's not until later about like the times when he'd, he'd put the money yeah. on the table and stuff. Yeah. Like that. He's even wistful about just normal random things like coming home and his father just 
being sitting there, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's He starts out as kind of the villain, I would say. Yeah. And he's definitely the one who does who gives the least fucks about this. He, I wouldn't I don't know if I would say that in part 3. I think part yeah. 3 he gives more of a fuck than Greta. <laughs> And then Greta does. But at the beginning of part two, Greta is the one who's kind to him, and it's almost sweet. Yeah. It's a kind of optimistic beginning. Like you said, you have the horrific ending to part one, and then you have this kind of, it's peace. It's like, I felt relief. I can only imagine how Gregor felt, but I felt relief that that was over, and he had a chance to just collect himself and chill, you right. know? And then... Uh, right. And settles and, into some sort of a life. Yeah, exactly. And then he's hungry. And this yeah. is something that contrasts with the end of the bed yeah. where he's not hungry at all. Exactly. Exactly. And so so in a really sort of nice as you say sort of a uh, uh, nice description of Greta becoming his caretaker, right? Like he, she's yeah. she's the one who's very vigilant about not letting his mother see his physical appearance because of how upset it will be but she she waits until everybody's out of the house the maid's out of the house and then she'll go leave him some food at first she leaves him what he used to like as a human but he doesn't touch it it's milk with bread in it and and he's like hey and he knows he used to like it but he's just abhorrent it makes me think about the phenomenology of, a, of an insect <laughs> like he's just so she starts doing little experiments um yeah. leaving leaving certain kinds of food out and seeing what he will eat right. the insect taste is too complex to be, <laughs> to be captured by a controlled experiment, experiment. <laughs> <laughs> i actually think that's so sweet and yeah. it really it's probably the peak of sweetness in this otherwise kind of despairing story but like yeah, yeah. like that she got and he was he was so hoping that she would understand that he didn't like the milk and she did almost right away. And then she brought him all this stuff to see what he would like. And that was, right. that's really nice. Yeah. Right. There's a moment where he's still jarred into remind being reminded that he's still uh, like abhorrent to, to the eyes of his sister when she walks in and, and she j- jumps back and he's, he thought that she had gotten used to it, but he's just reminded. No, no, yeah, actually, she's just been good at not, like, not seeing him. And then there's this really sad passage where he, he knowing that he spends four hours of labor. I have that highlighted too. Sheet. It's so sad. It's so sad. Four hours with his little insect hands to put the sheet just so that nobody can see him. Uh, and he's yeah. That's just it's. It's out of consideration for her and for them, yeah. he's covering himself because like, they're don't so Don't look at me! <laughs> and maybe this is one of the first kind of indications that, because one way of seeing the allegory is of an old person. And maybe this is what gets to me too, is having, you know, my dad was yeah. very old before he died and somebody who's dying is is... Alternates between yeah. yeah the kind of shame at their appearance and people are just like will often i think express a kind of involuntary disgust and that's terrible and then to feel like you're the cause of that and it's not your fault but right. you're still the cause of it is a really tragic thing that is just part of life yeah god all right i'm getting sad 
Gregor, I guess here is where Gregor is continues to transform. This is when he starts realizing that he likes hanging from the ceiling. Yeah. Um, Another nice moment. Yeah. And I hadn't really thought about that until again, I read this a long, long time ago, but, um, but you know, he's, he's realizing that he can, he does, he's not confined to the floor. He can walk up the walls and be on the ceiling. And he describes the, the hanging on the ceiling is completely different from lying on the floor. One quote, one could breathe more freely there. A gentle swaying motion rocked the body. And in the almost happy absent-mindedness Gregor experienced, it might happen to his own astonishment that he would let go and crash to the floor. <laughs> yeah, and uh, which is, again, kind of comic, but also mm-hmm. sort of sad. But, the you know, again, it's in contrast not only to his earlier life as a bug, but his the sense you get of his earlier life as a human where he never had a chance to breathe. He was always worried about performing well, selling the products and and making his general manager happy enough so that he could pay off his father's debts. And now that's right. And his mother even laments that he would never had fun. Like he would just, yeah, like not go out and not actually enjoy life. And here, here he's like getting a little respite. Yeah. And just getting to sway. And it's a really nice kind of, ah, I got to just stuff. I'm free (laughs) from all of life's pressures. And that honestly is how I like to remember Gregor. (laughs) <laughs> it is yes and then cred but unfortunately he crashes down and then and so his sister then thinks okay this is what he likes that makes sense and and wants to move the furniture out of the room so that he has an easier time getting up the walls and she by the way she notices not because he crawls around in her presence she notices the little trails yeah yeah at first he's all for that And then the mother comes in to help her because she can't do it all on her own. And the mother just has a strong reaction against it for an interesting reason because it's removing his connections to humanity, to being a human being. This is what you would do if it was a bug, if you're talking about a bug, but not what you were doing if you thought, you know, like that this person is retaining ties to being a human and this is the first kind of moment where you see that Gregor's sister is not the saint that you might have thought she was up until this point she gets kind of stubborn about it yeah i don't know if we're going to end up disagreeing about this like i totally can relate to the sister's transformation here she thinks he's she's an expert and understandably i think it's ambiguous i don't know if we're going to disagree or not but she thinks that she knows Gregor better than her mom does, which is true. And, you know, this is so much like the, the you know, the, the family members who end up being the primary caretakers of the elderly. Yeah. Um, exactly. They have a sense of entitlement about how they should be treated. And I think an earned one, like I'm not saying that is a disparaging way, right. but when somebody else tries to come in and tell them, what you should do with grandpa or whatever. No, like you don't know. You're not here with him every day. I have to clean the fucking diapers. You know, I have exactly. to like bring him water with a straw every day. I have to sit here with him while he's taking a, uh, and the yeah, actual person yeah. that you're supposed to care about just kind of gets forgotten in those disputes. Exactly. Exactly. No, that's absolutely right. And the way Kafka describes it, First, she's, you know, he definitely says it's reasonable enough that she thinks she knows more about Gregor than the mom. But then she, he also says, 
But perhaps the fanciful imagination of a girl of her age played a role as well, a sensibility always seeking its own gratification, and one which Greta now allowed to persuade her to render Gregor's situation even more horrific than before, so as to be able to do even more for him than she had hitherto. For a room in which Gregor held sole dominion over empty walls was a place where no one other than Greta would ever dare set foot. So it it eludes from Gregor's perspective, and almost all of this is from Gregor's perspective, it alludes to a possible ulterior motive that, like you say, she wants to feel like she's the person and nobody else gets to have a say and nobody else even gets to interact with him. And partly that's out of concern for him, but sometimes that gets lost. Yeah. And, you know, you can see her perspective. She's like, no, you aren't there every day to like feed him. And you're not the one who sees that he's been walking all up and down all the walls. Right. Right. At, perhaps with some difficulty. Right. Because because of what's in the room. So I can see why she would have a bit of a righteous indignation. So there's there's the accuracy of it. And then there's just the resentment that she seems to have toward her mom. Yeah. And there's no way for her to really know that it happens that she's wrong right. about this. Like she no, happens to be wrong. She was right. But she yeah. happens to be wrong now. Right. And because and then, the experiments on what Gregor wants gave her a false sense. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the illusion of fucking objectivity. So and then there is again this really just this great image of him just clinging to that photo of oh, the the woman in furs. Now it's furs. it's in that picture frame that the mother talked about in part one that he instead of going out with his friends that he would just make with his woodworking he's clinging to it on the wall covering his like uh the body and then uh that's when the mother comes in and she's screams and does her fainting thing (laughs) i don't know if she's the most unsympathetic but she's definitely the most she's not a strong character (laughs) This is no Marvel movie. This is uh <laughs> she, so she screams, runs out of the woman uh room and then Greta like shakes his, her fist at him like Gregor what the f-? And, and and addresses him for the first time. What's wrong with you? Then the mother is just weeping and this is the second time that Gregor comes out of his room to try to like comfort his mother. He feels like he should. That's what a human being does. A hu- mother is upset, a human being comforts his mother. Yeah. Yeah. But in this circumstance, not necessarily the right thing to do. Right. So then the doorbell rings <laughs> and dad's home. Dad's home. And now and the again, dread just is the, just the dread. Yeah, the dr- of- where this is, again, the dread of, of uh, somebody who, who's very familiar with a father <laughs> who would come home and put a whooping to him. Yeah. <laughs> Shit, I used to be afraid of that. <laughs> so now at, uh, Gregor is seeing his father a changed man, right? Where he was like, just yes. usually just in so his, his father's all come day home and lazy. His father's come home, comes home. Usually his father would be not even combing his hair, staying in his pajamas, sitting on the couch all day. Now he was standing properly erect. This is a quote dressed in a smart blue uniform with gold buttons of the sort worn by porters and banking establishments above the jacket's tail, tall, stiff collar, his powerful double chin unfurled beneath 
Bushy eyebrows, his black eyes peered out acutely and attentively. His once disheveled white hair had been painstakingly combed and parted until it gleamed. His father has actually, like, now, be, you know, become a, a functional member of society. And like you're right, I hadn't thought about like it. Maybe villain. Yeah, yeah. It's a Germanic kind of powerful double chin. I hope someday I'm described as having a powerful double chin. So just set the scene, though, also. The father comes home, he's in this uniform. The mother is sobbing and weeping, and the, the 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 daughter is trying to comfort her. And Gregor is out of his room, and then the dad comes home looking like this. And Gregor is kind of shocked to see he had been this diminished man. Yeah. And then this is what he looks like now. Again, sort of like you could have been doing this the whole time, motherfucker. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but but that's not the way. It's more scared that he sees him well and when he describes it you know it, this actually shocked me a little bit um he's describing the uniform yeah and then he just describes the giant dimensions of his boot soles yeah right in this super threatening menacing way so he raises foot unusually high gregor marveled at the gigantic dimensions of his boot soles but he did not lose any time over them, having learned on the very first day of his new life that his father considered only the utmost severity appropriate for him. So he knew he was going to get a smackdown. Yeah. So this is very much indicates that there was abuse in his past. Yeah. And this is just horrible. Again, like he's trying to get back into his room, but can't. And the father just starts throwing apples at him. Yeah. And it's we- weirdly like I don't know if, if we want to spend too much time on the biblical uh, illusions, but there are, plenty, yeah, though, and this is definitely one of them. Yeah, yeah. What were your thoughts? Uh, I'm not sure what to make of them. It's I a little too you know a little too on the nose for me. <laughs> well, I mean Apple. But it doesn't mm-hmm. tell you what to think about the apple. No, like it what's that knowledge of the human like tragedy rotting knowledge, in his back or something? Knowledge of I good and evil. Yeah, like I think there's a lot of biblical and other allusions, but no obvious way of understanding well, them. Like you could think of it as a Christ allegory, but it's not. It doesn't. It's totally not seem really, like that. Right? It doesn't. Yeah. It's, it's unclear what what he's trying to say. It's both on the nose with his with the apple and the heavenly father, and obscurely like un like <laughs> underspecified. Like what exactly? Like what does it even mean? Like the Bible. <laughs> I almost prefer to read it as non-biblical because I don't know what it would mean. Um, you know. I agree. I don't get. It's a really good story in that it resists any straightforward kind of explanation in those terms and that's why i think it's so great right so sure enough his father beats the shit out of him and he does so by hurling apples his way as we said and one of those apples actually manages to lodge itself into his back so there's some exoskeleton involved and there's some some spot in between that armor that body armor that has lodged in and this is where like you know you would just say well fucking somebody take it out then but no nobody's gonna touch him like that would be like they're barely capable of looking at him let alone touching him like he's basically like now like louis ck says like no that's just the rest of your life like now you're just gonna have an apple lodged in your back for the well, rest but of that's your life. like 
I mean, just to end the scene, like yeah. there's no nobody is trying to help him at this point. It, no. He's getting pelted with apples. He he manages to go in. The father is like gonna kill him. It seems yeah. like, and then and, it ends with the sister pleading for his life. That's right. And there is a there is a point in which the sister says, uh, "Gregor has what does she say has gotten out?" Yeah. Um, that I think I was reading somewhere that, that it's an unnecessarily connoting that something bad is happening from him getting out. Not just that he's not in his yeah. room, but that he's escaped, and that that indicates that something that he's doing something bad, which which leads to that immediate reaction by the father, who's like, "I told you so," you know. And yeah. when he's saying that, "I told you so," it's like you, know, you can imagine the father taking stripping his belt off of his waist, getting ready to beat down. Well, it's almost like the sister wants to punish Gregor because they made the mother faint again. You've made yeah. the and so the sister probably says that, kind of knowing, "Oh, good, he's going to get an ass whipping, and he deserves it." But then when it goes too far, she doesn't want him to be killed. I mean, you can imagine this again as a domestic situation yeah. with the sister at first maybe taking advantage of the fact that the father is, is you know, like maybe she has resentments and issues of her own, but then she doesn't really want him to hurt Gregor. Yeah. And so she stops him, at least at this point, she does. Yeah. And, you know, the, another interesting thing about the sister that you find out just almost as an offhand remark that they considered her kind of a useless child. And so she took pride in, here's one thing I can do. I can take care of Gregor, and none of you can do it, and I can do it. And so, like, she's actually gaining a identity and some worth, some, like, value to the family by doing this. Yep, yep, she's, she's showed her value. Oh, you know what we, we forgot to mention? That you get also a little glimpse into their finances, which weren't oh, yeah. as bad as as they thought. And right. in fact, the father had been saving up some money. And so you wonder, wait a minute, if he was saving up all this money, why was Gregor working this soul-crushing job if he had saved this money? Now, it's not like they had a lot of money. But no, they were definitely. But Gregor didn't know about it, and he says he didn't ask. They never talked about it. I understood it to be that the money that Gregor was bringing them every month that his father was able to set aside some of that, so that it was actually from the job. So, so I think you said this before, but but he's his dad's indebted to the boss, and Gregor is in Gregor's estimation. He's already been working for five years. In his estimation, maybe he can get out from under the debt after five years. Uh, I thought monthly. it was he had been under the impression that his father had retained nothing at all of his former firm's holdings, or at least his father had never said anything to the contrary. And admittedly, Gregor had never asked him about this. And so, I, yeah, yeah. So no, I, no, I no, you're right. He was, was the father's firm's holdings. Yeah, you're right. Because he, yeah, he lost the business five years ago, and that's why Gregor started working. And, and, and then he yeah. talks about these lovely times. I think this is a key passage. All had grown accustomed to this arrangement of Gregor working, and uh, not just the family, but Gregor as well. They gratefully accepted the money, and he was happy to provide it. But the exchange no longer felt particularly warm. 
At first, it was like, oh, you're saving us, Gregor. But yeah. now it didn't. Only <laughs> Gregor's sister had remained close to him all this time, and it was his secret plan to send her off to study at the conservatory next year. Unlike Gregor, she dearly loved music and could play the violin quite movingly. If anybody <laughs> who's listening has had family members that you support in that way, yeah. that's all too familiar a feeling where after a while they just come to expend it. Expect, expect it. it. Yeah, Expe- and we don't feel that, that about our patrons. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> and maybe for the first time you get a sense that maybe Gregor is doing something that they don't necessarily want him to do. But the comfortable lives that they're going, that they lead, kind of the temptation of that, of that comfortable life leads them to accept it. But maybe Gregor just wants to see himself as a savior. And that's not necessarily what they want. Huh. And certainly not what they need. That's interesting because I, I'd never thought that Gregor wanted this. I t- I, and I took it that his surprise at seeing the money, I was championing him for not being like a bitter fuck, you had money this whole time and I'm busting my ass, right? Like, like I, I thought that he would have reacted with more bitterness at, at the knowledge, but he seems to be, like, happy for his family. Um, yes. He does kind of mention, well, I, maybe I could have left the firm earlier if I had known about this, but you're right. right. He does seem, right. overall, fairly happy. No, my point is more that his original motives might not have been as pure as we have thought up till now like yeah. so, you're i take it you're you like even if it's not an explicit motivation there is there is a sense of satisfaction in in two things one being the one you know with with the power right like, yeah and two there is there is unfortunately some satisfaction in playing the victim right yeah and again when when you find out at the end that they kind of flourish without him even there it's terrible you know that 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 aspect of it i think gets gets heightened now you don't know this at this point but you do know that he didn't even ask his father if he needed him to do you have any money do i really need to do this do i he just did it they never talked about it they're not close as you say so now on to section three this opens up with a month has gone by um and that apple has just been lodged in gregor's back uh He's ailing, right? It's it's causing it's him like, pain. This is one it's of the things pain. I remember. Yeah. Like you remember certain images, and this was definitely one of them. This ba- this apple in his flesh, just rotting. Yeah, and Horrible. no one. He says no. Yeah, no one dared to remove it. Um, but it seems to have reminded his father that Gregor, despite his current lamentable, repulsive form, was a member of the family who should not be treated like an enemy. It's like they they have some guilt clearly over over how the events transpired. But yeah. Gregor is is wounded. He's lost his mobility. He's sick. He's man, turns out he's dying. The father's villainy has peaked. Like mm-hmm. at this point, he becomes much more considerate of Gregor. Does again? It's it starts the new part after the horrifying, just pandemonium, the just turmoil. You have a somewhat peaceful, even though everything's degrading. Yeah. And it seems like the family's just resigned itself to this kind of miserable existence, right? That their conversations are no, no longer as animated. Um, you know, 
they're 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 seems like they're just all depressed about their state in in life right yeah much more than in part two it's like in part two they're trying to they're talking about it trying to figure out what to do now they're just like the father's just comes home at night and is tired falls asleep in his chair they have to take in lodgers they have this new charwoman charwoman yeah Uh, i had to look that up (laughs) she's very much like a caretaker for the elderly too like she's not disgusted at all yeah these people like they do like i remember when my dad likes that this person would just help my dad shower you know when he couldn't shower anymore seriously god bless those people they're saints like but they have this kind of rough sensibility it's like they don't get disgusted but they also aren't all that emotional either yeah you can't be too sensitive or yeah. else you're <laughs> you're not doing it right um and even though it's not explicitly stated you get the sense that before they might have had some hope for a cure like yeah. something's gonna happen right but now they're like no this is just how it is and then you also get this sense from gregor's perspective and again this reminded me of when when you're old you kind of alternate between feeling guilty about what you're putting your people who are taking care of you through and a kind of resentment and anger that they're not doing enough yeah so that's that's exactly what starts happening to gregor he starts like anger starts building yeah he says sometimes he would feel bad at other times he would not he would not be at all in a frame of mind to look after his family instead he was filled with rage at how poorly he was attended to and although he could not imagine anything he would have liked to eat he plotted how he might gain access to the pantry so as to help himself to what despite his total absence of hunger was his due and that is a yeah that totally it so perfectly captures something again yeah. in this it evokes aging yeah. person you know and my my grandma toward the end of her life would actually take some delight in in putting people out after a while yeah, like she exactly like, <laughs> i remember her throwing it in our face once she's like see you thought i was gonna die but i didn't <laughs> yeah exactly because you're pissed off at some and and totally irrationally sometimes yeah because you start to feel like before the the family was maybe a little resentful that they were the kind of parasitic elements of the family. Now Gregor is starting to feel that, and and the and meanwhile the sister has taken not taking good care of his room now anymore. She's just getting tired of it. She's yeah. She's grown she's grown weary of caring for Gregor, as she's as she's she'd previously done. So his room's a mess. It's dirty. Yeah. At first she was trying to move out all the furniture. Now they're just putting shit in there. And so he has less and less room to move. And she was not cleaning it. And when the mother tries to clean it, she throws a fit. That's right. And they're also storing furniture because they have those lodgers now. And they brought their own furniture, so they have to just fill. His room is just now the storage room. Uh, Those (laughs) lodgers are also kind of weird, dreamy I don't know, like some kind of surreal nightmare figures too. They're comic, yeah. but they're they're kind of indistinguishable. You get the sense there was one leader, but <laughs> yeah, and they're very demanding, and the family is very deferential to them for now. Right. Meanwhile, yeah. Gregor has, I think, unwittingly started doing a hunger strike. Like, yeah, he, he's just stops eating and it's, 
he seems to think that like, well, if I, if I really wanted to, I would, but I just, I'm not, I'm not hungry. Right. Um, he's, he's just starts wasting away. Yeah. And again, very much yeah. like, uh, this is a person who's going to die somewhat soon. You, you know, it wasn't it, like the, the, the whole old person thing yeah. had crossed my mind, but it, it did not. Like now in our discussion, it's really, really, really about old age. They get angry irrationally, They, but they also feel guilty, and then they also stop eating. Yeah, I read it as something else, but I'll get to that when we talk about it. Again, so, I don't think, like, I, I, I want to resist saying, oh, this is about getting no, old. No, no, it can't I don't be. think it's like that at all, but I think he is evoking certain aspects of our experience and but really what it is is a bug that is yeah. dying <laughs> yeah a, a, that, this very literally made it clear that this is a dying bug <laughs> this is a giant insect that used to be a human being that is dying yeah. uh, there's this also a touching scene where his sister is playing violin well, yeah, I guess this is leading to the end. Yeah, but this it just so happens. This is not <laughs> <Yeah>. that touching. <laughs> no, the moment though is that he wants he's he, his sister playing the violin is is moving him. He, you know, he's trying to creep in to 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 this initiates the final events, but he's trying to hear her playing violin and he says, "Was he a beast that music so moved him? He felt as if he were being shown the way to that unknown nourishment he craved." There's something really <laughs> It's like yeah. a moth to a flame in some ways. And the flame here is the human community. Like yeah. he is trying to, this is his last gasp attempt at remaining human and, and having people recognize him as a human being, like a person. Yeah. yeah. And it leads ultimately to his death, but he does come out there. Yeah. And he has all these kind of fantasies of, he, he, he crawls out of his room and you know whenever he leaves his room things don't go well he comes out there and he wants to to be to just listen to her and like he gets these fantasies of imprisoning her in the room sort of but she would stay there of her own free will yeah exactly it's like a frankfurt case kind of <laughs> <laughs> and he would keep all the other people out and she would just play the violin for him and like that's the you know and i think at a very deep level he knows that'll never happen but it's so like this is the last time that he will feel like a part of the family and a part of the human family Right. So because they see him, the lodgers say, like, fuck it, we're leaving. Right. Well, they, they're um, like, what the hell is that? They don't even react. It's not like the initial shock of, like, the first maid that they had. And the, they're like, what the heck? Yeah, what is this? Like, what are you doing? Like, how are we? It's almost that they didn't tell. Like, how you didn't tell yeah. us that there was this? Like, we're li- we've been living with this thing? It's like finding out that there's asbestos in, in the walls. <laughs> and it's weird. It's like they're not reacting in a literal way as everybody else has, pretty and, much. Yeah, and weirdly like like and I'm gonna stay here and not pay the rent. <laughs> well, they say they're leaving, but yeah. that they'll sue. They're not just gonna not pay, but they're gonna sue them, is what I yeah. took that to be. <clears throat> but um but uh, so <laughs> So then, yeah, right. so here yeah. now the father is 
actually trying more to deal with the lodgers, not getting that mad at Gregor at this point. And now the sister becomes, if you think the villain is the person who wants to destroy Gregor, it is the sister. The father is just trying to calm the situation down. Right. The sister, he's like, there's nothing to see here. Like, he's trying to, like, push them back. Yeah. And now the sister say, we have to get rid of it. Like, and, yeah. and it's very clear that she's talking about him as an it right now. Yeah. And that is, I mean, that is thrown in your face. And then right. the father is being more sympathetic to Greg, and she even says, with, or as he describes it, with notable compassion, but what can we do? And, and then the sister says something which, this is where it makes me think, like, at this point she is not a sympathetic character. She says, like, if it was really Gregor, he would have left. Essentially telling him to kill himself, kind of, mm -hmm. or die. She says, it would have realized a long time ago that it isn't possible for human beings to live beside such a creature, and it would have gone away on its own. Just forget the fact that every time he tries to leave the room, he <laughs> gets, like, shooed back in. And then she's shrieking and starting again, and she's essentially telling them that he has to... He has to go. Like, they don't want him yeah. anymore. They completely are rejecting him now. And then there's this passage. But Gregor was far from wanting to frighten anybody, above all his sister. All he'd done was start to turn around to make his way back to his room. And admittedly, this operation would have been hard not to notice, since in his current injured state, he was obliged to use his head to help with his difficult maneuver he kept raising it up and then thumping it against the floor pausing he glanced around his good intentions seemed to have been recognized it had only been a momentary fright None, now all of them gazed at him sadly and in silence his mother lay in her armchair her extended legs pressed together barely able to keep her eyes open in her exhaustion his father and sister sat side by side and his sister had draped one hand across her father's neck Perhaps I'll be allowed to turn around now, Gregor thought, and resumed his labors. He could not entirely suppress the wheezing this exertion produced, and now and then he had to rest. Otherwise, no one was harassing him. He had been left to attend to matters on his own. So now he takes this long walk back to his room. Mm -hmm. This is what got me. It's getting me now. <laughs> so I had, to st I had to stop reading. It's just so... So heartbreaking, just that the realization is sinking in for him. Yeah, and and that description that you just alluded to, he was astonished at how great a distance separated him from his destination, and he didn't understand how weak as he was, he had been able to traverse the same distance just a little while before, almost without noticing. Yeah, he's 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 doing the the final walk. Yeah, and he had sprung out before. So, I mean, his family's reaction gives him energy or it takes it away. And, yeah. now, and now he's realizing this This is c concluded. He's, he's n no more hope that he's going to be integrated into his family. He's not, even a, he's not even a thing, you know, he's not even the brother anymore. Like once his sister has given up on him so resolutely and then she ends up yeah. locking him in his room. Yeah. Um, it's very much a mirror of that opening scene, but the sister was the one protecting him and the father was the one threatening him. And now it's kind of the opposite. And the sister's the one that slams the door 
and scares them. Yeah. And then he has kind of a nice death scene, actually. Yeah. 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 Um, already he could scarcely feel the rotting apple in his back, nor the inflamed area surrounding it, but now enveloped in soft dust, both now enveloped in soft dust, he thought back on his family with tenderness and love. His opinion that he must by all means disappear was possibly even more emphatic than that of his sister. He remained in this state of empty, peaceful reflection until the clock tower struck the third hour of morning. He watched as everything began to lighten outside his window. Then his head sank all the way to the floor without volition, and from his nostrils his last breath very faintly streamed. God. Mm. <laughs> yeah. I don't know why, like, a bug dying does this to me. <laughs> It's our bug. <laughs> <laughs> and just the rejection, the, the loneliness oh. of it. It's so... I know, and it, you feel like, hey, this is kind of how we're all going to go, man. Nobody can come with us. You know, like uh, this is, you know, I was watching uh, Tombstone again the other day and the very, the death scene of um, uh, Doc Holliday, he's begging, he's in tears. He says to Wyatt Earp, he begs him, if you've ever been my friend, please leave now because he knows he's going to die. And there is some, some way in which it's a private moment, right? Um, but I don't know what I don't know whether don't I'd want know. to be surrounded by people I loved or not have them have to see that. Uh, it seems like that's a nice peaceful moment that would have been yeah. nice if he could share with his yeah with people who loved him. But he doesn't have those people. Anymore. No, and it's nice that he's just rem- remembering the love. Yeah, right. Because he he's his sister. There's no hand for his sister to hold. You know, he's become. He's become this other thing. And again, there's no, even though this is clearly like a death scene that evokes people dying for us, the way it's described, again, reminds me of like an old dog just turning around really slowly, (laughs) just grateful for being able to drag themselves back to like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's also like, he's like not wanting to put anybody else out. Yeah. You know, he just wants to go back to his room. Um, just whatever you do, don't name your next dog Gregor. <laughs> you know? Oh God! So then the family is just like everything's great after he dies. Like yeah, they, they kick the lodgers out. It's almost like this kind of satisfying because the lodgers have been dicks, and the father is like, "Get the fuck out of my house." Yeah, and which he's never had the strength to do before. They never leave. They never left the house that we saw, and now they all go out into the sunshine, and they're writing letters, and they're just—they're free. You know, they are free. Is, they're liberated. This is the relief that sometimes yes. comes from. Yeah, you know, I, I I knew a woman whose whose husband, you know, took took ill, died. It took her a long. It took him a long time to die, like a good couple of years, and when he died. It's like she started a new life. I mean, were, she was elderly, but it's, mm-hmm. she had all this energy and she was traveling and it was like, it's a little weird, but, but of course, you know? Absolutely. But in this case, it's not an older, an elderly person. It is a, it's, you know, her brother, it's their son. And yeah. so there is something, there's something about, it's just something really, I, it's interesting that 
you know, now, as many have noted, Greta is the one that has metamorphosized. Like, yeah. she is this strong. I know it seems really their happiness seems unseemly, but I can't help but think, like, seems like a happy ending to me. I don't I don't know. Yeah. I, 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 I wasn't like his death is sad. Uh, he was a burden, man. He, he's a guy who became a bug and was living in their room. But he had also sacrificed his you know, yeah, but their mourning had him. to happen before. So this is gets to like this. I mean, this is not only just like some an elderly person, but it also I couldn't help but read this as somebody with severe depression. Yeah. Um. You know, and the way that that it's hard for a family to deal with somebody who's suffering that way. Yeah. Um. That's yeah. right. I mean, again, the, and that, you know, Kafka suffered from suicidal tendencies and anxiety and depression and all of that. And so, you know, it, yeah. it could be a kind of projection of how people would feel if he just left their life, the people. Yeah. Remember, to. remember when we were talking to Matt Nock about suicide, you know, and he was talking about how sometimes people when you ask why, how they could leave their family, like their kids or whatever, it's they genuinely believe they would be better off. And this is some sort of a, like a almost twisted fantasy in which the family's better off without you. But he, yeah, maybe yes. But there's a kind of coldness to the way in which they're better off. You know, there's a kind of brutality to it. The sort of the, the daughter just blooming and with all this, and this is the next day. Like yeah. this, that, that makes me think it's not, it's not a happy ending in it, uh, or at least they're not an ambiguous, it's not an unambiguously happy ending. And not only that, but it also, you start to think, wait a minute, what was this sacrifice for? If they're yeah. so, you know, happy and healthy and blooming and just, <laughs> then like, why did he take that job and do that job, that mind-numbing job forever? Like, yeah. that's yeah. the sort of tr- the, the, the final irony to me of the story is they didn't need him in the first place. Well, you know, just his love of that Venus and furs, my, this, this is a masochistic fantasy. It's like a very odd, not sexually masochistic, obviously, but it's like, yeah, huh. I sacrificed... Not only did they not want me when I was a bug, but it turns out they would have been better off without me doing anything in their life. Like, yeah, that's that's that that reads like what a depressed, severely depressed person might think about their life. Like, it's like the opposite of um, of that Christmas movie. Um, it's a Wonderful Life. It's like it's like a reverse. It's a Wonderful Life. <laughs> right. Like, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's interesting. Yeah. And that's what's and and you know the change in point of view too now it becomes a very kind of more impersonal way of describing what's going on and they they don't you know the the parents have always been called Gregor's mom and Gregor's mother yeah. Gregor's father but now it's just Mr and Mrs Samsa right. and Greta and yeah it's like he's just been and his point of view has been expunged from the text and now it's 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 interesting that that it continues to be narrated from seemingly the same voice you know? seemingly it's, except these little details of yeah. right. the, of how people are referred to and right. um but yeah he's definitely dead like <laughs> the, he's this dried up bug 
as uh, we have beetles in the house and he that's what they seem like when they're dried up and dead they just like they're just half dusty things like you know they'll crumble if they've been there long enough they'll just crumble and that's yeah. what the, the the char woman takes care of him, and they're just cleaning house. They they get rid of the lodgers. They get rid of the. They're gonna get rid of the char woman. Everything is just starting anew for them. It's a new day, a new yeah. German day. <laughs> uh, Kafka was a Jew, at least. Um, <laughs> this is not well. Complete. Yeah, he's not complete. Yeah, that's right. It's it's uh, it's also weird. How Christian this would be coming from Kafka? I mean, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, if you wanted to see it as a Christ sacrificing himself for his family, yeah. then then yes. Well, you know, Jews. He was a Jew. He was I was going to say something. About Do you want to talk about like the? I, I guess I I'm not pulled towards. Marxist readings. There is that element, though, that he is a he is alienated from the product of his labor. This whatever he's selling, you barely yeah. find out. I don't know if you ever find out. Yeah, Certainly so. not. You me- know, there memorable. he has samples out, but I don't yeah. think it specifies what the samples even are. He, he is Crack. clearly uh, like a cog in this machine. He is used for his labor, and if his labor isn't producing at a high enough rate, he'll be let go. So there is that element, but it's much more... I mean, it works on on a bunch of levels. Like, you can ask the question whether or not Kafka, in his mind, had had the intended allegory as the worker, you know? And, and maybe that's the case, but I think as with we've said probably many times and many people have said like what makes a work of art great is that there are layers to this shit that like it speaks to something deep and universal about the human experience that that there might be one interpretation that was in Kafka's mind doesn't change much to me about the story. The story speaks you if you want it to be about, you know, about a kid coming out of the closet right? It might speak to something yep. to you there, right? It does, it, be, it could, it, it's, to me, I favor this as any kind of, of human change that other humans have to deal with, like toward the negative, whether it's deterioration from illness or some alienation from what, you, who you used to be and who you, who, who you've become. Like, yeah. I, I, it's such a powerful to me, it's a, it, it is so, this is the most obvious thing I could ever say. It's so much about the change that occurs in a human being and how that can affect everybody around them. Um. I mean, it's obvious, but it's, uh, I think what it's ultimately about, like it's, yeah, just, it's deep. It's, I mean, you can even, even just like shit, like coming home from college to your friends at home and you've changed, you yeah. know, it's like, it's, it resonates so deeply with the, 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 any experience of being rejected by people who who you're like, no, no, I'm one of you, right? Like, let me come out and listen to the violin in my fucking beetle body. <laughs> like, and with that, and with every change, you get a little distance from the person, or at least yeah. it feels that way at first. And all of a sudden, we're not speaking the same language. You know, this just happens yeah. all the time. And sometimes it happens where it really just breaks up the the relationship. What's What's actually really powerful to me in in this frustrating visceral sense is that. 
Gregor can't communicate any of this because like that's yes. normally how you would get around this, right? Exactly. You would talk to somebody, you'd be like, you know, even through the course of a marriage, of course you change and you yeah. like you have to keep talking about it. You have to keep working on it. That's like, what you, saves you know, it. Is that exactly you can. like you're yeah. going out tonight, right? Like I, I remember thinking that my non-married friends never understood why like I'd be like, well, I, I have, I've, I'm hanging out with my wife tonight. And they'd be like, but you hang out every night. I'm like, no, yeah. you have to keep working on that shit. Like, <laughs> yeah. And yes. And so there's that tragedy of not being able to communicate while at the same time hearing people communicate ab- about you. Right. Yeah. And, the, and that actually you're the, the, the dog vibes that you kept getting yes, um, and what made you the saddest. I take it to be like when, when I was feeling what I think you were feeling, that's the tragedy of it. It's like, yeah. they can't tell you like they can't, there's no way like they can't, they're, they're, they're just trying to, I want to listen to the violin. Like, let's be, let's huddle up in the next to the fireplace. Like, <laughs> like. And, and they're geniuses at understanding you often, but they can't, uh, sometimes, and maybe especially when they get old. I mean, my dogs are getting old, and and then you know you you start they start to become less. Hey, I remember when I could take my dog for like a f- five mile hike, and now they can I can barely get them around the you know three blocks. Like you know you know it would be nice a new dog. Like <laughs> you know that is the cycle of a dog. You, now, you need like, a charwoman to come over and like just sweep your dogs aside. <laughs> I want a char woman. I mean, but you know, like that's the thing of that's the power of the story. It evokes, you know, aging relatives, dogs, depress depression, anxiety. Yeah, all of it. It's just like a superhero origin Feminist. story. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's not much of a superhero. <laughs> he can walk on walls. He's like he's like the if like. If Spider-Man is created, like, uh, there's probably 99 Kafka monsters created by mistake. Your power is you have the form of a dung beetle and you can curl on the wall. (laughs) Uh, Great story, though. Really great. (laughs) We tried to do justice. Definitely heard me get emotional and... You know, I feel we, like we I feel like we depressed ourselves. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm definitely depressed. I mean, I was just I've been depressed all day just dealing with this story uh in you know, I've I've really done not much else. And if I'm being honest, I I had a little bit of a sense of superiority that that I wasn't feeling as emotional that I, I was like going to look down on you for feeling emotional <laughs> like now. <laughs> no, now I'm feeling it too. I'm gonna go. Let's all right. Let's go get a fucking drink. Yeah, definitely get drunk tonight. All right. Well, uh, join us next time for a more cheerful episode of Very Bad Wizards. <laughs> you have me fucking crying.
Just a very bad wizard.